0: Morning, Christchurch. A moment ago in our collect, I don't know if you maybe caught it the way I did, but let me just read to you our prayer for the week. This is the prayer if you are uh, going through the daily office. You'll be praying this prayer all this week in your daily devotionals. It says this: "O oh Lord, you have taught us that without love, all our deeds are nothing." Send your Holy Spirit and pour into our hearts that most excellent gift of charity, of love. So hold on to that, and let me pray as we go into our sermon this morning. Lord, all of our deeds without love are as nothing, but with love, only the love of you poured into our hearts. Suddenly, they take on eternal significance. They are like tidal waves that just keep on rippling far beyond initial action. So as we prepare to hear from your word to hear from the gospel of Matthew, to hear in this sermon, would you speak to each of our hearts and pour out your love that we may more deeply love you and love our neighbor. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Amen. We are in a series right now going through Matthew's Gospel, and sometimes, I just have to be honest with you as a preacher, sometimes when you prepare a sermon, um, everything just comes so neatly together, and you think, that's it, that's a sermon I'm supposed to preach, and it's pretty obvious and quite easy. Other times, there are so many things happening in a passage, it just becomes exciting, and you think, well, we could talk about this, or we could talk about this, or any number of different things, and at the end of the day, you just kind of throw back your hands and say, Lord, it's all good what do you want to talk about today? And this is one of those types of sermons where we can go, I mean, there, there could be an entire month-long series through Matthew 2. So much is happening, not just at an interesting level, but so much is happening at a heart level. And what does it mean for us who try to follow Jesus in this world? And so one of the ways I, um, I tried to narrow down what, is, what are some of the main themes about Matthew that we might talk about this week is I did a word cloud study on Matthew 2. Has anyone ever done a word cloud before? A couple of you know what this is. So, so what it is, it's a way of analyzing a text. And you can do this with any writing, not just the Bible. Um, but you take it and you, you put it into a, a word cloud generator. And the more certain words show up, those words become bigger and bigger. So it lets you kind of pictorially see what's the whole, what's this paragraph talking about or what's this chapter talking about. So I read in the ESV, which is a very literal translation, and I put Matthew chapter 2 into a word cloud, and this is what it looked like. And you can see, if we go to the next slide, here are the two biggest words, child and Herod. And I thought, okay, I'm reading the ESV, a very literal translation. I wonder what a more... um, conversational translation like the message. What might it say are the main themes of chapter two? So we'll go to the message. Put that one up. You can see some of those words. And again, what do you see are the biggest words? Child and Herod. Whatever Matthew chapter two is about, it must be about the child and Herod, which is another way of saying, as we've been talking about Matthew's gospel, Father Cliff over the past couple of weeks has said we're in the introduction and we're setting the characters Chapter 2 might be called setting the conflict. You're setting the tension. What What is going to propel this story forward? And I would say this theme right here, two rival kingdoms, is the whole theme of the gospel of Matthew, that there is a true king who calls for our obedience, and yet we live in a world under different powers and under a different kingdom, What does it mean to live in a world where uh, you are trying to faithfully follow Jesus, the king, and yet also there are other rival kingdoms and rival ways of living? So what we're talking about today, we're going to talk about Herod and the child. Who's the true king and whose kingdom really has power? And what I want to do is I want to start just by telling the story of Matthew chapter 2 again. It's a familiar story. It's a Christmas story. Doesn't it kind of feel weird that it's 90 degrees outside and we're talking about the Magi? Like something doesn't feel right. We know know it. We know something feels off. So I want to tell this story again that you've heard so many times. And what I want to do is I want to make the familiar unfamiliar. Because you've heard it so much that maybe we sometimes just gloss over some of the nuance here. And then I want to pull out um, three different ways that Jesus is the true king. and What does it mean to follow this true king? So let me tell you the story again. We begin with magi from the east, and these magi, they're originally, uh, they're from Persia, and um, a magi, it's where we get the word magician, but it's a mixture of a scholar, it's a mixture of a fortune teller, of a religious figure, a priestly caste. In Jewish scripture, you would be forbidden from practicing fortune telling, but these men were fortune tellers but they had a great reputation in their own culture. They're pagans, but they're pagans whose job, according to Jewish law, would be intrinsically unholy. So from a devout Jewish perspective, they're not necessarily favorable people, even though in their context they are favorable people. And these magi see something in the sky that is so significant that they take note of it. And they, in fact, finance an incredible journey to go and figure out what this might be pointing to now. To finance a journey like these guys did, you don't just hop on a plane and fly across the desert. You've got to get camels, you've got to get donkeys, you have to have food for your camels and donkeys, food for yourselves. You have to have, you're bringing gold and frankincense and myrrh, and so you've got to have traveling protection. Like these are guys who financed a great trip to go and investigate, to go and figure out what is it that this star is pointing to. This is a costly response that they have. And you might be wondering, well, They saw a star in the sky. I see stars in the sky, and I don't hop on airplanes. What is it about this star in the sky that they saw? And you you need to understand, in the ancient world, when you saw something in the heavens, you had this kind of belief that what was happening in the heavens was somehow being mirrored on earth. So we have stories of like when Julius Caesar dies, for instance, there's a great comet that goes racing across the sky, and it's supposed to mean, well, maybe Julius Caesar has now become a god. Like we have these, this kind of the, the ancient mythology, the imagination that you're thinking about is that what happens in the heavenly sphere is being mirrored on earth. So we see a great star appear in the sky, and that must mean there's been a great ruler born on the earth. And we don't know exactly what this great star is that they saw. Maybe it was some angelic appearance. Maybe um, we found out. I mean, you can kind of look astrologists, astronomers, astronomers, thank you. Astronomers today can look back and see around 7 BC, there's this like Jupiter and Saturn and Mars all come together, and that would have made a giant spectacle in the sky. We don't know exactly what they saw, but take note of this. Something happened in the natural world as a sign that led these people to go and make an expensive journey. They felt like they had been communicated with. They went to Jerusalem because this is where you expect the king of the Jews to be born. Only Herod doesn't have any newborn children. I mean, can you imagine showing up at the palace and saying, we're here to worship and honor the newborn king, and Herod says, what king? I don't have any newborn children, so he immediately becomes suspicious. He's not, the newborn king is not born of the family of Herod, so where is this rival power? And Herod, how can Herod deal with him? And what you need to know about Herod is Herod is not a particularly great ruler in world history. In fact, at this point already in his career, he has murdered a wife and three of his own sons out of fear and paranoia that they would steal his throne. He has a reputation as being a ruthless ruler. In fact, upon his death, he had written it into his will that all the nobles in the land would be slaughtered so that there would be great weeping, so people would cry when he died. Now, thankfully, that didn't happen. So people actually rejoiced when he died. But this is the type of king that he was self serving, self preserving, egocentric ruler. So Herod calls together his own scholars, and they try to figure out where is this king who's supposed to be born, and they say Bethlehem. And in verse 5 of Matthew 2 and verse 6, you see Matthew introducing one of his key phrases, fulfill. Matthew will say this word, word fulfill, so many times in his gospel to say everything that is happening in Jesus' life isn't accidental. It is fulfilling the ancient promises that God has made. Herod is threatened. So he slyly tells the Magi, go and find the child and let me know where he is so that I can worship him. The Magi go to Bethlehem, and they now find Jesus, who is one to perhaps two years old. And they present these treasures to him, treasures that are fit for a king. And then they're warned in a dream not to take the normal route back home. If they took the normal route back home, they would pass again by Jerusalem. And you just can't pass by Jerusalem in an entourage as big as theirs and not be noticed. So they're warned, they go a long and circuitous route back through the desert south, a difficult road back home. And while they're making this return journey home, Joseph also has a dream warning him to take Mary and Jesus down to Egypt and to remain there for safety. So he flees there, and he takes the holy family with him. And I just want to make a parenthetical comment here. I, uh, back in Kentucky, had a friend who is an Egyptian-born Muslim, and he had converted to following Jesus. And he said how important this passage was that Egypt, which is known as the bad guys throughout the Old Testament, that Egypt could cradle and protect the Savior. It totally reframes who Egypt is in his mind. And then just to point this out as well, that our Lord becomes a refugee. Like in modern political climate, we would say he's an asylum seeker. He's seeking safety at cost of his life. And as we approach political decisions in our modern world, our faith doesn't allow us to operate in a vacuum. Our Lord was displaced. And it doesn't mean We have to have open borders or anything else, but it does mean we can't be dismissive of refugees and asylum seekers because our Lord was one. So, Herod, when he realizes the Magi have deserted him, this ruler becomes enraged and he does something truly unthinkable. And you've heard this story before, but hear it again. A ruler, in his anger, puts to death all of the boys under the age of two in the vicinity of Bethlehem. This should evoke in your biblical imagination Moses and the story of all of the children, all the Hebrew boys being killed that early. This action offends us so deeply because we know how precious all life is. And again, a parenthetical comment here, Christians are called to be radically pro-life for all of life. We often say from the womb, from natural conception to the tomb, to natural death. There's a radical pro-lifeness of standing for life. And we see the exact opposite in Herod here. And the chapter ends with Herod's own death and the holy family coming out of Egypt and back into Israel to Nazareth. Okay, that's the story retold, refamiliarizing ourselves with these details. And I want to bring up just a couple of uh, themes. About this king that we worship. Who is this king? Who is this child that we worship? And what is his kingdom like? I want to bring up the first point is um, the king who summons us. What sort of king do we worship? The king who summons us. Here's a king who summons all to worship him. And think in this passage of the ways in which God has invited others to worship him, who he's spoken to. Think about this, to the magi. The unclean pagans, he has sent a star. He's reached out to them through natural creation. He's kind of stepped down into their language and said, you're looking for me in the stars. I send you a star to know to worship me. Then he sends them a dream, warning them not to go back to Herod. To Joseph, he sends a dream that takes the family to Egypt. To the Jews, four times in the chapter, in Matthew chapter 2, they will hear that it was fulfilled, citing promises from the Old Testament. To Mary in chapter 1, God sent an angel. And even Herod, think about this. Even Herod was invited to come and worship the child. God even sent an invitation to Herod to come and worship the, the child. Herod declined it, but he himself was summoned to worship. God speaks to the Jews, to the Gentiles, to the unclean, to the pagans. He uses scripture, natural creation, dreams, angels. He is speaking. He is not silent. And I call this transcendent imminence It's kind of a paradox. And that's a huge word. And you're wondering, Matt, why are you giving us vocabulary like that on a Sunday morning? And maybe you'll just want, maybe you'll remember it. Transcendent imminence is paradox. Here's the deal. God is so much higher than you and me. As we just prayed a moment ago, he is the great one. And yet he steps down to speak to you in a language you can understand. To the astrologists, to the the magi, he appears as a star. To the Jews, he appears fulfilling scripture. God condescends, he steps down. He is the high and above one who becomes the low on your level one. And the picture you should have is like, you know when parents get down onto a carpet and they talk face to face with a baby just in like little baby whispers? They are talking in a language that the child can understand, even though they're greater than the child because they love the child, and they want the child to respond to them. This is the God who is summoning every human throughout the world to worship him, the one who is inviting every human to worship him, the one who is speaking to every human to worship him. He stoops down. We have a theological word for this, and it's called provenient grace. Again, more vocabulary this morning. Write it down if you want to. This is an important concept to understand because um, early church fathers came up. They said, listen, we aren't even able to respond to God. We don't go first to God. God always comes first to us. Provenient grace is the grace that comes first to you, allowing you to respond to God. You can't go to God on your own. You're not good enough. You don't know you like, a baby can't stand up and walk to its parent. It is invited, it is summoned, it is spoken to by the parent, the parent lifts it up. God is sending all over the world at all times his spirit to call you, to beckon you, to invite you, to respond to him. Think about how you came to know Jesus. What were the circumstances? Maybe you were born in a Christian home. For me, there were all these coincidences, right? All these coincidences as I was coming to know Jesus, these friends that suddenly came into my life. The situation that was in my life, things that were happening, all felt like coincidences. And as I look back now, I see God was, he was closing the circle around me. He was drawing me closer and closer. He was summoning me to himself. Things were ap- happening outside of my control, led me to the point to realize there is a God, there is a king, and I'm being summoned to worship him. Prevenient grace, God is calling out to everyone. God has sent out his messages, his signs all over the world. And we talk a lot about evangelism around here. In fact, we have Father Herb, who is evangelist in residence, leading classes on how to become better in evangelism. Here's what you need to know about evangelism. You are never the first person speaking to another person. You're always the second. God is already, have this imagination, have this confidence. God is already drawing every person to himself. He doesn't need you. And that should give you a sense of comfort, relief, confidence. Here's another way you might think about this. Um, We have a number of artists here at Christ Church. Do you know that? (laughs) Do you know we have a number of artists here? Wonderful, wonderful artists. If you have ever been to an art gallery, maybe you've been to East, East Austin Studio Tour, and you look at a painting, you can look at a painting and it says something about the artist just by looking at it. But then once you read the artist's statement, it says a little bit more about what you're looking at right there, but how much more when the artist is standing beside you saying, this is what I'm desiring to communicate, the artist speaking to you. Jesus is always speaking to you, always summoning you. And this doesn't end once you begin to follow the king. He always is summoning you to worship him more deeply. Every day, every minute, God is wooing God is inviting, summoning you. He's speaking to you as if you were the only person on earth, inviting you into his presence. This is the goal of life, that you would see God face to face. Even now, God is speaking to you. And we'll talk about this in a minute. God actually likes you. That might be surprising, right? God likes you. He is interested in you. You're his greatest project in your life. He may feel distant to you for a moment, but he's still speaking. I had one spiritual director say it this way, and I think this is just a lovely image to think about God. Sometimes when God feels so distant and we wonder, God, are you really still speaking to me right now? You know sometimes how grandmothers, especially, will play that game with their grandchildren where they play hide and seek, and then they hide in the most obvious place. They like pull a curtain in front of them, but their feet are sticking out, and you know the kid can see their form behind the curtain. They're wanting to be found, but they want the child to seek for them. The spiritual director says, this is how God is so often with us. He is still speaking to you, but he is inviting you, seek me, search for me, that you may find me. Let me encourage you today, if you feel like God has not spoken to you in a long time, during communion, go to one of our prayer stations and just say, I just want to hear from God. I believe he speaks. Would you... Would you just listen? Would you pray and help me to hear the voice of God right now speaking to me? Our king summons. He is speaking all over the world. He is calling all over the world. That's the first point, this character of our king. Secondly, Jesus is the only king. In the end, Jesus is the only king, the final king who rules over all. All the rival kingdoms of the world will one day end, but his will remain. What I mean by saying that Jesus is the only king is that there is an exclusive claim Jesus makes to each of us. Think of the Magi. The Magi cannot both obey Herod and obey the king. They have to make a choice. There comes a decision point in their lives. I call this inclusive exclusivity. I regret some of my decisions right now. (laughs) Now, inclusive, exclusivity. Think about this for a minute. What this means, inclusive, everyone, exclusivity, but not everyone will say yes. Everyone is invited. Everyone is summoned, but not everyone will say yes. And again, it might feel strange to talk about the Magi right now. When do we normally talk about the Magi? We actually talk about them during Epiphany, right after Christmas. You know what Epiphany means? Means the manifestation, means the appearance of God to the Gentiles, the revealing. We talk about the Magi at Epiphany because they represent the nations are invited in to worship God, to worship the King. You know, a number of years ago, about a decade at this point, I was in Rome and we were invited to go to the catacombs. And we're looking at the tombs of some of the early Christians. And do you know what is painted beside many of the tombs of the early Christians? It's the Magi. And do you know why? Because what is being said is that they they were Gentiles, and they were invited to worship Jesus. And we Romans are Gentiles, and we're invited to worship Jesus. So we want to be reminded, even in our death, that there is this invitation to worship the only king. And you might wonder, why am I making this point this morning? Why does this matter so much? And one of the reasons it matters is because you live in Austin. In the 21st century, and that means there is a social pressure on you that you cannot say one religion is better than another. You cannot say one way of following God is right because that might be offensive. So instead, you're supposed to say, well, all roads lead to God because that sounds tolerant and it maybe sounds humble, only it's actually not. It's not a tolerant position because think about it. When you say all roads lead to God, you're essentially saying this is the right religious belief. That all religions are equal. And you're essentially saying my religious view is better than your religious view. Your view is narrow that says Jesus is the only way. That's a narrow view. And it leaves out many people. Mine is open and accepting because all roads lead to God. But here's the problem. How can you know all roads lead to God unless you can see all roads? How could you know all roads lead to God unless you could see the end of where all roads are going? Sometimes people say, well, we're all on different trails headed up a mountain. Well, how do you know there's only one mountain? How do you know there aren't multiple mountains? How do you know you're on the right mountain after all? The claim that all roads lead to the same place is actually an exclusive claim that says my religious view is better than your religious view. Your view is wrong. I can see more clearly than you. And though my view sounds more tolerant initially, it is actually more intolerant because it ignores other people's religious beliefs. Tell a Muslim and a devout Catholic they believe the same, that their religions lead to the same place. That is an intolerant view. It is more intolerant than than the view that Jesus is the only way to know the Father. When I talk with people who aren't following Jesus, I don't begin by saying, you know, there's only one way. That's not particularly where I start the conversation, but it inevitably comes up. I was in an, uh, an Uber recently, and um, the Uber driver, I wasn't wearing my collar, okay? This conversation just happened. I hopped in the car, and the Uber, Uber driver turned to me and said, hey, we've got about 20 minutes in the car together. Um, if a man sleeps with another woman who's not his wife, do you think he cheated on her? And I said, brother, you have no idea who you just started talking to. <laughs> Yeah, I've got a lot of things to say about that. We, had, we ended up having this conversation, and, and of course, I quickly said, listen, I'm a pastor. Here's where I'm coming. But I, I said this. I said, listen, at the end of the day, only Jesus will, Jesus will make demands on you. Jesus will call that infidelity. But the reason he does is because he has made the world a certain way, and only in following him will you be led to happiness Only in following him will you be led to wholeness. Only in following him will you be led to this kind of lasting life that you so deeply desire. Like there is only one way. I eventually got to sort of the same conversation. You're invited, but he will still make demands on you. C.S. Lewis says it best in The Great Divorce when he's speaking about hell, and he says no one is in hell because he has to be there, but because the person wants to be there. God's invitation is open to everyone, and in the end, everyone will say to God, God, I worship you. Your will be done, which is to be in heaven with God, or they will say, I worship myself. My will be done, which is to be in hell. God does not force people into his presence. He invites, and to refuse the invitation is to be left outside. We've looked at the summons of the king. We've looked at the the only king, the exclusive king. Finally, I want to look at the character of the king. And really, there are only two kingdoms, the kingdom of Herod or the kingdom of the child. And we become like the king we follow. And just think of these differences between the king. Herod is ruthless. Jesus is meek. Herod forces your obedience. Jesus invites you to follow. Herod will murder wife, child, baby to retain power. Jesus lays down his life to rescue you. Herod curses Jesus blesses. We follow the king who is empowered for meekness. He he appears powerless. Even though he has the power, he comes as infant king. He's carpenter king. He is crucified king. He is reigning king. With reference to Jesus and his kingdom, we are all subjects pledging allegiance, choosing to be apprentices of Jesus in order that we would become more like him. And it's true, there are Herods of the world, and there are leaders who lead very poorly, but in my experience, Herod lurks in every human heart. Every one of us is tempted to put ourselves first, to retain power, to manipulate others so that we get what we want. This comes up even in Christian ministry and leadership. I was at a workshop with our bishop recently, Bishop Todd, and he just had this amazing way of saying something. He said, uh, so often, he's talking to pastors. He says, so often I talk to pastors, and pastors talk about building God's kingdom or extending God's kingdom, or I talk to nonprofit leaders who are talking about how they extend God's kingdom. He says, that's just not biblical language. You know, in, in this conversation, I would say that's Herodian language. Because it's trying to say, I'm doing something that God needs me to do to make his kingdom bigger. God doesn't need you. And what our bishop said is he said, all you can do is enter the kingdom. You can receive the kingdom. But you're not building it. You're not extending. you're, You're not responsible for something like that. God doesn't need your power. You are God's greatest project. At the end of your life, think about all of your accomplishments right now. Your accomplishments in work, your accomplishments in in school, businesses perhaps you've started, children you've had, things you've watched go on. At the end of your life, will you hold all of your accomplishments up and say, God, look at all that I've done for you? Will you hold them before God on the final day and say, this is all that I've done for you to build your kingdom? Shouldn't you love me now, God? Or at the end, will you simply say this, I'm yours, Lord. Lord saved by your grace your son dying for me may i enter your kingdom may i receive your kingdom you are our lord's greatest project he desires you he loves you he will command you and he will command you and call you to what i call counterformational practices Ways of remaking your heart so that you can freely love God. You know why we tithe every week at church? It's not just to fill out a church budget. It is to loosen the grip that money has on our hearts. To be reformed to say, I don't own money. I'm steward of money, steward of resources. Why we confess every week? It is because we are all sinners and we are reminded I am imperfect and it is only by grace I'm saved. Do you know we take a meal together every week? Because we say, I need your grace more, God. Reform my understanding that I'm not capable in my own efforts to do much of good in the world. I need your goodness. Remember the opening prayer I prayed, pour into our hearts your love, God. That's why we come forward for communion, that our hearts would be poured into by God a counter-formational practice Say something different about the way we live in this world. Do you know why we practice forgiveness? This is our, if you want to know about conflict resolution, right? You want to take a seminar on conflict resolution? Here is the Christian approach. It's called forgiveness, which is bearing the cost that you could pay back to another person. It is a counterformational practice that forms your heart to follow this king and to lay down the Herodian impulses in your own heart. Your own heart will want to follow Herod. You will want to hold power like Herod. You will want to be known like Herod. And yet, in these practices, you're simply saying, Holy Spirit, remake me. Make me anew. New creation, recreation, image of Christ. You know, I often say around here, you've heard me say it before, you are not just a human being, you are a human becoming. Every one of you is becoming something. You are becoming either into the image more and more of Herod, more and more into ruthlessness, power hoarding, self centeredness, or more and more into Christ the one who's empowered for meekness, the one who freely gives his life away, the one who just lives in a freedom and a grace and a love that extends to other people, not a forced love, but just natural, spontaneously flowing out of themselves loves You are not just a human being, you're a human becoming, and in the end, every one of us is becoming either more as Herod or as the child. And that is gonna be the whole theme of the Gospel of Matthew. These are the kingdoms in conflict, and which will you follow? Can you learn to take up your cross and follow Christ's day? daily, in life. And that's what we hope to, as our aspiration. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, you are Lord, good Lord, rescuer, deliverer, the one who pours out your Holy Spirit into our hearts, inviting all of us, speaking to all of us. And right now, here in this place, in Christ church, would you speak more deeply to our hearts and invite us more to follow you, to love you more freely, to love our neighbor as ourselves to be content and at peace in the world, recognizing you are the in-charge king, not us. Would you fill us with your spirit? We pray in your name, Lord. Amen.